I'm Nick Harvey-Doyle, a Ngunnawan man from the northern tablelands of New South Wales. The Yarn podcast is made on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Bunurong people. We'd like to acknowledge First Nations people as the first storytellers. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. From the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, this is The Yarn. I'm Thomas Phillips. For the last seven years, producers from All the Best have mentored audio journalism students from Melbourne University. It's an initiative that teaches emerging storytellers the ins and outs of audio production, culminating in a series of short documentaries produced by students that are broadcasted across the country. Today, we're bringing you a collection of all the best, all-time favourite audio stories from Melbourne Uni students. They recently aired these stories on an episode commemorating our seven-year relationship. First up, a story from back in 2017 by former student Julia Bergen, in which her grandfather delivers a eulogy at his own funeral. March in Melbourne was meant to serve as a celebration for my grandfather's 100th birthday. But just 14 days shy of this magic milestone, it sadly morphed into his funeral. Although Grandpa had already received congratulatory certification from the Pope, the Queen and Australian parliamentary royalty, my family felt shortchanged on his behalf that he hadn't made it to triple digits. Having endured the Great Depression and six years of World War II as a 19-year-old soldier, Grandpa was never particularly concerned about his death coinciding with a global pandemic. In hindsight, had he survived to the big day, COVID-19 would have had him either blowing out the candles on his own or, failing that, digging his own grave. Although drive-through birthdays for the elderly became all the rage, Even Grandpa could not be convinced about the logistics of a drive-through, drop-off funeral. In those days, there's no such thing as takeaway. A lot more home deliveries in those days. Your milk was delivered, uh, you'd put your billy can out at your gate. Mail, of course, there was the postman would deliver. Newspapers were delivered to the home. Courtesy of the pre-COVID lockdown departure, Grandpa was relieved of all delivery duties, one, he was still charged with delivering the eulogy at his own funeral. Pay attention, please. If I see you talk again, I'll bring you up the front. Grandpa lived by himself in a townhouse in the Melbourne suburb of Glen Waverley for all by the last few months of his life. He'd been staunchly opposed to the idea of ever relocating, making it clear to my father that he would not be bought out. He received a phone call from a very raw young real estate agent desperate to sell his house to the rapidly growing Asian population in Burwood East. Please let me know if you're planning to move, Mr Bergen. Darling, said Dad, the only move I'll be making is to Springvale. Undeterred, she said this was great news, failing to appreciate that Springvale was in fact the cemetery. Grandpa never skipped a beat. His one week in an aged care home was too short to register as a formal change of address. 
he stuck to his will and moved straight on to greener pastures at Springvale Cemetery. Notwithstanding his residential status, he was given a royal departure by the aged care facility. I was fortunate enough to be there together with my aunt and uncle when Grandpa finally pulled up stumps. During his final hours, Grandpa's all-time favourite tune, Oh Danny Boy, was blasted on repeat. And upon learning he was a religious man, a priest was brought in to give him a blessing. In the spirit of things, the nurse decided post-blessing was the opportune time to raise the bed from its certifiably safe resting place on the floor. Despite the intended sobriety of the moment, the ceremonious elevation of Grandpa into the heavens had us all in fits of laughter. But we weren't breaking any rules. According to Grandpa, it was protocol to prioritise humour. Well, I'd put it this way. In our family, we've always tried to get running through our lives 60% humorous, 40% serious, uh, because there's plenty of time in life to be serious. Having just come back from six months in Japan, I was exceptionally pleased to be able to spend Grandpa's final day bringing him up to speed on Japanese nudity protocol. Whether or not he took a liking to my chosen topic, I have no doubt Grandpa appreciated the satirical soliloquy. He could now rest easy, knowing that someone in the family could equally and endlessly regale my father with the same gift of the gab. Let me tell you a story. Have you got a couple of hours? Pay attention. There'll be questions at the end. He was particularly prone to the prolex. Why say in ten words what you can say in a hundred? You knew you were in for a, a fair hiding with a long session when he came out with the most feared phrase of all, I digress. That could take you on a journey to anything from Japanese cultural traditions to one of his favourites, which was the link between earlobe length and longevity. Often you could be on the phone to Dad, have a break, go to the toilet, go shopping, maybe mow the lawn, and you could come back and undeterred he'd still be going. Well... This is where I should interrupt before I answer that question. Well, I'll answer that question, but I'm just throwing this extra information. And there are only two flavours of ice cream. That was it. There'd be strawberry or vanilla and no other flavours available. Now, to talk about that, I think I should talk about that. People had no refrigerators. They had ice chests. An ice chest would be half the size of, of, of a refrigerator, the ice went in the top, and the lower part you put your food. The ice would melt and drip into a tray, and somebody in the house had to empty that at the end of every day, empty the water that in, from the drip tray. You would keep your milk and you'd keep your butter, and uh, no such thing as margarine, it was all butter in those days. Uh, anyway, uh, how'd I get onto that? So, as a journalist, it's going to be hard to take Grandpa's advice that I should never let the facts get in the way of a good story. But I will certainly be upholding his commitment to words and the greater good of the tale. 
In his later years, the subject matter of these glorious yarns seemed to inevitably regress into the latest and greatest of his bowel movements. Guests at both his 98th and 99th birthday were all briefed during his acceptance speeches. Stories revolving around other medical ailments were always angled, not what the doctor said, but what Grandpa said to the doctor. One of my favourite yarns was after Dad broke his hip. He was struggling with pain and frailty and just general malaise. I asked how he was going and he said, well, I guess I'm going to die. Very concerned, I asked, what did he mean? He said, oh, I'm on the Nitschke euthanasia pill. I'm on end one. Should be dead in a couple of days. And I said, show me the box. That doesn't make any sense. It was, of course, the painkiller endone. Grandpa really did live a life filled with humour, which is why a few years back I thought he would be the perfect candidate to help me see the humour in the process of death. I had a university project which required me to make a podcast with the theme of blood. I opted for bloodlines. I decided that the best way to put the family dynamic on show was not with the introduction of new people to the family with a wedding, but through the exit of someone with a funeral. So I pitched this idea to Grandpa and asked him if he would like to comment on the state of affairs of his own funeral. I reasoned... This wasn't the first time he'd thought through the logistics of his departure. He was an accountant by trade for his whole working life and, needless to say, was an incredibly organised traveller. So organised was he that he even investigated burial at sea to stop us worrying about having to bring the body home if he died. Unfortunately, he found out that he wouldn't be able to do that because it was reserved for members of the Navy, or alternatively, pirates. But this time, Grandpa wasn't interested in being on the funeral planning committee. The answer was a very staunch no, followed by a long lecture about the negative repercussions of pursuing a project of this nature. Specifically, I would no doubt fail my grades. Grandpa loved to say no, but more than that, he loved the drama of changing his mind. Not if, but when you managed to convince him. He would be the life and soul of the party. And so it played out. My father and I managed to lure him into a home recording studio and have him trial a few lines, with which he turned around and said, This is fabulous. I just wish you'd given me more time to rehearse my lines. Three years later, the plans for Grandpa's funeral came to life. My uncle, followed by my father, each took their turns to say a few words, and then it was over to me. The congregation were visibly concerned when I announced Grandpa would like to speak about his departure, but then I hit play. This is the funeral planning podcast I recorded with Grandpa and my father three years prior to his death, played at his funeral as the final part of his eulogy. Negotiations for Grandpa's funeral are currently underway between Grandpa and Father. They firstly discussed music. It's obviously going to be a requiem mass and by definition the hymns would be deeply religious. 
Uh, I would like our Danny boy. In fact, the ultimate would be a microphone in the in the casket, and then I would invite the congregation to join in. In fact, I'd give you a sample right now if you'd like it. Oh, Danny boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling. They also considered the funeral size. Everybody loved Dad. This will be gigantic. It will be bigger than Ben Hur. Well, I would have visualised a small funeral, immediate family, really. Having said that, uh, lots of other people I could think about. This this lady on the cruise ship in South Africa proposed marriage to me. There's the, the butcher at Coles. In fact, all the staff at Coles. And this strange lady I met the other day walking down High Street, uh, I would also like it to be dog-friendly. The crowd could magnify and could get bigger and bigger. Uh, if it did, I would like to visualise the we could make a small charge for admission. That would suit me fine. Next, they deliberated how best to dispose of the body. I prefer to be buried, but uh, I hope the casket can be properly handled because I did attend a funeral where the casket was dropped, fell the wrong way and got wedged into the grave. So they had to call the fire brigade. I was also at another one where the casket was badly handled, that's why it concerns me, where the, the corpse couldn't be removed from the funeral car, so the rear window had to be smashed to get it out. I think that I might like to take out insurance against this uh, to, to see that all these people are qualified to do the job. Oh, definitely not a cremation. has to be a burial. The last cremation I went to was down at Wilson's Prom. The ashes were solemnly scattered into the waves, which then turned around and started washing up on people's shoes on the beach. Not repeating that exercise, definitely not. Having said that, I am a bit concerned about the dog-friendly funeral. I'd hate little Sammy to start digging up bones at the cemetery. We'll have to watch that one. Finally, they agreed on who would speak. I've been a doctor for 35 years, and the only way we will know that Dad is actually dead is if he doesn't speak. And to be honest, even then, I'd be surprised if we don't hear from him at the funeral as well. (laughs) That's good. I'm pleased to announce that Grandpa got his wish and the funeral was dog-friendly. No bones were dug up, but my dog Sammy did try to jump into the grave with Grandpa at the burial. As requested, Grandpa's funeral was anything but the traditionally sombre affair. Even the funeral director commented, I don't normally say this about funerals, but this was fantastic. And it really was. For a man whose lasting legacy is his humour and his voice, it was only fitting to hear the final word from Grandpa at his own funeral. That story was produced by Julia Bergen. Next, a story from 2018. Dilpre Corps investigates discriminatory beauty standards. Nobody wanted me to play in the sun for long. My 60-year-old neighbor had over and over again told my mother how my skin was getting darker each day. She already has a fat nose, she said. On top of it, she's not even light. Who's going to marry her? There I was, a dark brown Indian girl with a fat nose, thinking of future suitors at the age of 12. Pale. They want to look very pale. It makes them look more maybe feminine or look more delicate, look more very ladylike. (laughs) I wasn't the only one who was expected to turn into a white fairy somehow. 
My friend Yu Jing-sim tells me how important light skin is in Chinese culture. This is a Chinese saying, actually. It translates to um, a level of whiteness is able to conceal three levels of ugliness. A level of whiteness is able to conceal three levels of ugliness. The whiter you are, the prettier you are. Growing up in India as a dark brown girl, I was constantly told to use skin whitening products, to not go out in the sun, or my favorite, to not drink chai so much. What if I got darker than I already was? Yeah, you're right about the Indian Indians wanting to change their, you know, skin color, and it's just like a fad that never goes away. It's, it's just fascinating to see how... My friend from India, Prachi, grew up in a similar culture of obsession with light skin. Everyone had to suggest I use a skin whitening product One skin whitening brand that has been selling in India since 1970s is called Fair and Lovely. I guess what they're trying to say is, if you aren't fair, you aren't lovely. I remember I was 15 years old and needed a new photo for the school ID card. I went to the shops and got a new picture clicked. When I saw my photo, I was surprised. I had slimmer face, I had sharper nose and much, much lighter skin. I was photoshopped by a stranger into the perfect light brown Indian girl who doesn't have a fat nose. That was 2009. And today the Photoshop world has been taken over by Facetune, a phone app that makes people look quote unquote perfect. Meet Facetune. Rejuvenate your skin with the smooth tool. Show off your white teeth and perfect your smile. Remove any skin blemishes. Facetune can make your eyes look bigger, nose look sharper, and skin look lighter. Facetune is the best thing. I believe in Facetune. You are presenting to the world what you want them to believe you are. Definitely one of my all-time favorite used apps. I'll give you guys some tips on how to make your pictures look super bomb that you can do to just take a good picture and turn it into a really, really great picture. I have like these bumps right here on my forehead, one right here. So we're going to go down to where it says smoother. That's Khloe Kardashian and other YouTube celebrities raving about Facetune. In fact, more than just raving, Khloe Kardashian says Facetune is life. It's kind of affecting the people that are using them today. It's giving them a wrong sense of what they look like. And honestly, I feel like if you like yourself the way you look after all these enhancements on the app, it might just create a sort of a want to change something in uh, in yourself. For example, like, I like my nose uh, this slim on, on an app and I want to change the way that I want to look. Hmm, I mean, let's, let's consider nose surgery, you know, Let, let's... Let's, uh, let's consider rhinoplasty. Eurocentric standards of beauty keep people of color under constant pressure, whether it's skin whitening for Indian women like me or a double eyelid surgery for a Southeast Asian woman. Every effort is an effort to look as close to white as possible. I think especially girls, they are really, they're very insecure about, they're very, maybe, they think their face is very wide, very big, or they think they're very tan. And then they will use these apps so that they will make themselves look a little more like what they would want themselves to ideally look like. 
As a woman of color in a mostly white country, I am often surrounded by standards of beauty that do not apply to me. Industries can make hundreds of creams and lure me into getting lighter skin, but what cream can they possibly make to alter identity? It's been 15 years since I refused to use any skin whitening products. I'm brown. I'll always be brown. It's perfect and I'm happy. That story was produced by Dilpreet Kaur. Today's final story explores how access to menstrual products can change lives. It was produced by Wen Kuang, Chang He, and Interpreet Kaur in 2019. My mom gave me a disposable pad when I had my first period. It was convenient. You remove the plastic cover, stick the pad on the panty, and throw it into the bin when it's filled. But for some girls, disposable pads can be a privilege. Ingrid Kaur is 22 years old. She comes from a village of Amritsar, one of the business centers of northern India. She was at school when she had her first period, and her teacher gave her a piece of cloth. And she just gave me a rag. She just told me that, feel free, just fix this rag on your panty. And I was like, how I can fix it? Where I can fix it? And she just told me that, feel free, just use it. On that time, I was totally scared. Even I don't know what is happening with me. In Australia, some female environmentalists also use cloth-made pads to reduce plastic waste. But what they use are fancier than interprets. The pad she used was torn from a bed sheet as big as a magazine. To make it fit her panty, her teacher even folded it for three times before giving the cloth to her. And after six months, I just told to my mom, Mom, I don't want to use it. I feel rashes. I feel irritations. And she just told me that, okay, definitely we will change it. When it comes to her next period, Interbreed got a new cloth pad from her mom. It was made of cotton, and the quality of the material was better. It is much softer than the previous one. But whenever I use it, I feel rashes, I feel irritation. My mom told me that you have to wash it by your hand, and told me that you just hang it behind your clothes where all the family members hang their clothes. I remember that when I was in washroom, I just want to remove all the stains, but it couldn't. It was very hard for me. Professor Jane Gunn is the Deputy Dean of the Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry and Health Science at the University of Melbourne. She says while there's nothing wrong with using cloth pads, they are much more difficult to maintain and keep clean. Cleaning a cloth pad properly is going to take a bit of effort. It's going to require good access to good water supply and also a way of actually making sure that if there has been some growth of bacteria or infection in the pad, that's actually laundered in a way that kills those organisms. And it's not just about it looking clean. It might look clean, but there could still be infection that's there. I asked Interpret, why didn't you just use disposable pads? She concurred that disposable pads were sold in Indian supermarkets, but they were pricey. Her family could afford the pads, but her mom believed that cloth pads were not safe because they contained plastic. It wasn't just her mom who had prejudice against disposable pads. Even today, 
menstruation is still seen as a taboo in rural India. But there were always people who tried to break the taboo. In 1998, a man invented a machine that could make low-cost disposable pads. His name is Aruchanaha Muruganatha. His story was adapted into a movie called Padman, one of the best-selling Bollywood films last year. Big man, strong man, not making country strong. In 2014, Muruganatham was one of the 100 most influential people in the world recognized by Time magazine. Woman strong, mother strong, sister strong, then country strong. Can such a small disposable pad really change a country? In the brief, share another story. Three years later, she started using disposable pads and found that unlike the cloth pads, these pads fixed to her panty. This meant she didn't need to worry about the legs, and she started to do more sports at school. Her classmates also realized such benefits. One night, my friend came to me and just told me that, "Do you have sanitary pad? I want to go to class." Can you give me one? I'm not feeling confident when I was in class. I'm just scared. Any stain put on my dress, so just give me a disposable pad. The next day, she saw her in class. She looked so happy and so confident. When girls are empowered, they can change the world. The yarn is from the Center for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. It's produced on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. A massive thank you to producers Julia Bergen, Dilpre Kaur, Wen Kuang, Chang He, and Interpreet Kaur. Thanks also to all the best supervising producers Jordan Fennell and Eugenia Zobchenko. Our executive producer is Louisa Lim. I'm Thomas Phillips. See you next week.